Please stand with me for the reading of Scripture from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, first eight verses of Luke 20. Hear now the word of God. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him, and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray as we look to this passage this evening. Our, our God and Father, we do thank you that you have gathered us to hear the word once again, the word of Christ, the, the gospels which have preserved for us the, the teaching and the uh, events surrounding our Lord. And we desire to receive those words with faith. We desire not only to receive them, but also to believe them. And also to do them insofar as they have application for us to do things and to believe things. I pray that you would teach us this evening uh, that we would revere the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. We would be those who submit to him in all things. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you who have played the game of chess, you will be familiar with two terms. There is the term check, and then there's the term checkmate. You mentioned check when you've moved into a position where you have the potential to strike somebody else's king. They have to to move their king piece in order to avoid the end of the game and their own defeat. But then you pronounce checkmate when you have moved that king into an insoluble position where there is no other way around and you thereby win the game of chess. In our text tonight, there is a verbal exchange between our Lord Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem and the temple, and this dialogue opens with Jesus' attempt to corner, or the, the religious leaders' attempt to corner Jesus into this position that he can't get out of. They're asking him, who gave you the authority to do these things? They want to challenge him, to defeat him, to expose him. But at the end of the brief exchange, our Lord has deftly moved them into a position where they are checkmate. Uh, They have lost the game, they have no solution, and their, uh, their whole position has been exposed. This is the incredible wisdom of our Lord Jesus put on display for us. Now, this verbal exchange, of course, is not just here for the sake of learning principles of speech and debate. It's not here merely for our intellectual curiosity. It has importance for us. It has application to us as we consider our Lord Jesus and who he is. This dialogue reminds us of something very important, and that is that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus Christ. 
Now, it starts with this discussion about authority, and their question is never directly answered. By what authority do you do these things? But we know the answer to that question, don't we? As we study the rest of the scriptures, as we learn about what all the New Testament teaches about Jesus, we know that the answer is that Jesus has all authority, and he has been given this authority, has been bestowed upon him by God the Father to do exactly what he did in this narrative. The Pharisees could not answer Jesus' questions about John the Baptist and his baptism, but I hope all of us can answer that question with certainty this evening. Was the baptism of John from man or from heaven? That's an important question. We'll consider that question because it has implications for what you believe about Jesus, as we will see. Knowing the answer to that question leads us to certain inevitable conclusions about who Jesus is because John pointed to Jesus. And knowing who Jesus is is of the utmost urgency and importance for everyone who hears these words tonight. John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This, brothers and sisters, is eternal life, to know God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's how important these things are, that we answer these questions rightly. If this is eternal life, then answering the question of who Jesus is with a believing answer, with a faith conviction that he is the Son of God, and that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and takes away your sin, is of the highest consequence for each of us this evening. And whether we receive the words of Christ as words that come with the highest authority is an essential test of whether we are his disciples or not. His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. Those who are not his sheep do not hear his voice and they do not follow him. And so the words of Christ then are of the utmost importance to us. So let's look at this this interchange interchange, this exchange that happened here in Luke chapter 20 and consider its implications for us. Let's remember what happened at the end of chapter 19 following Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem upon a donkey. He uh, entered into the temple. He had, of course, lamented the impending destruction of Jerusalem, but then he entered into the temple and he cleansed the temple of the covetousness and theft and wickedness that had crept into this holy place, this place that was to be the holy dwelling place of God. And it was to be, as our Lord said, a place, a house of prayer for all the nations. And it had been turned into a den of thieves. And as Pastor Kevin uh, taught last week, uh, some of the historical facts about the uh, priestly administration of Annas, we, we see that our Lord was not exaggerating when he said that this was a den of thieves. This wasn't hyperbole. There was many uh, wicked and covetous things taking place within the precincts of the temple. It had been very much corrupted. And so our Lord Jesus, he comes into the temple, he overturns the money changers with a whip of cords, he drives out the animals of the temple, he is cleansing the temple of the Lord. Our Lord was zealous for the purity of God's worship, as we should be as well. And it does seem to me that we have something of a fulfillment of what we read in our scripture reading a little bit ago from Malachi chapter 3. As it says in Malachi 3.1, 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. There's different ways in which the Lord came to his temple at different times to cleanse it and to purify his people. But certainly this is what Jesus is doing. He is entering into the temple. He is cleansing it. He is purging it of all of this this wickedness and this insincerity and these practices that were contrary to his worship. He's refining it. But that's not what many people saw. They didn't see the God, the Father, they didn't see the Lord of hosts as they may have perceived it. They saw Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, come into the temple and start whipping things and turning over tables and rebuking people. And so the religious leaders are saying, who does he think he is? Who is this guy that's coming into the temple, turning over things and telling people what to do. And, and now in our passage, it says he's here preaching the gospel. He's walking around the temple preaching. Who is this guy? And who does he think he is to do such a thing? After all, the chief priests and the scribes, they themselves see, see their role as the guardian of God's worship. They are the ones tasked with what happens in the temple. And how dare this man just come in and and create such a disturbance. And so that's what provokes their question. They're saying, what authority does this man have to come rushing in here and to do all of these things? And so let's look at verses 1 through 2 again. It happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him. And spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? Now we know that their intentions are not good, as is so often the case with the religious leaders that oppose Jesus. They didn't have good intentions often with their questions. But their question is a good question. If they would answer it rightly, they would have insight as to who Jesus is. Uh, It would have been better for them to have received the testimony of Jesus, and then they wouldn't have had to ask the question. They could have just received his words, and they would have known rightly who he is. But indeed, it is a good question. Who is this person to come in and cleanse the temple? That was not just something anybody could do. This is a only something that the Lord himself has the right to do, is to purge the temple in this way. But they had rejected the claims of Christ by and large. There were few amongst the religious leaders of that day that received Christ, Nicodemus uh, being an exception there to the rule. Most of them believed that Jesus was a heretic, a blasphemer, a false teacher, a false prophet. And so when they asked this question, they already had their implied answer. When they said, by what authority do you do these things, what they really were saying is, you don't have any authority to do these things. And Jesus knows this. He, he is, of course, wise to their stratagems. He knows their, uh, the ways in which they would try to test him. They did that with the, denari- uh, with the question of paying taxes, for example, and Jesus was able to get out of that one quite well by exposing various things. And so we, can, we look at our, our Lord's response now. And as we study the Gospels and as we study the words of Christ, we can learn so much wisdom from the way in which our Lord handled things. 
Now, we don't have the same advantages as our Lord in terms of the perfection of wisdom and the perfection of speech, the sinlessness of speech, but there's much that we can learn from the ways in which he responded to people. There are many times in our Lord's ministry when he does not directly answer questions that are asked of him. Many times he he would evade the question with a counter-question that would move the conversation in a better direction. And I think this is a a verbal strategy that is useful for us. Granted, it's not always the right thing to do. It's not always right to uh, ignore somebody's direct question and redirect it. That takes wisdom to know when to do this. But Jesus used much wisdom in this regard. He He would expose the presuppositions, the preconceptions of those that brought the questions. Just to take one example for comparison, you remember his interaction with the rich young ruler back in some previous chapters. And the the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? It's a question. The purpose of the counter question was to, to mine into this young man's conception of goodness. He had a wrong conception of goodness. He thought of people as good teachers and he thought of himself as good. He He had a much too elevated conception of goodness, and Jesus is seeking to remind him that it is only God himself who can truly and ultimately and absolutely be called good. There was a massive gap between this young man's goodness and the goodness of God. And so our Lord would often use this strategy. He would counter-question to expose preconceptions and wrong assumptions on the part of those who were speaking to him. And so that's what we find him doing here in verses 3 through 4. It says, But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Now as you look at this question, you have to think about why is this relevant? Is it just a way of dodging things? Is it just kind of a random throw a question and then run away? Or is there some relevance to the question they asked? I do believe there is relevance. I believe that as if they would answer this question rightly, their original question would be answered. If they answered that the baptism of John was from heaven then thereby they would accept the fact of what John had come to do. He had come to testify of Jesus, the coming one. The purpose of John's ministry was to point to another person. That was the whole point. It was to prepare the people for the coming Messiah. It was to uh, humble them, to give them this baptism of repentance for the remission of sins so that they would be ready for the coming of the Messiah. They'd be ready to receive him. And so if the... Pharisees, if the scribes and the the priests, they answered this question rightly about John, they would thereby know that what John had said was true, that the baptism was from God, and that what John said about Jesus was true. John was the greatest and last of all the old covenant prophets, but he wasn't even worthy to untie Jesus' sandal, he said. Gives you a sense then of the importance of our Lord Jesus Christ in comparison with John. 
And not only was John's baptism uh, something that prepared the people to receive Jesus, but John's most important and most well-known baptismal candidate, if we may call him that, was Jesus Christ himself. He had, John had baptized Jesus, despite the fact that John was not quite understanding the purpose of this baptism. And it was at that baptism, the baptism of Jesus Christ administered by John, that the voice of the Father from heaven was heard. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If they had received all of that, if they had traced their steps back to all that they had heard about John and all they had heard about Jesus, they would have their answer. Jesus didn't need to tell them about all this. He didn't need to sit down and give this 10-minute apologetic for why he was really the Son of God, they had heard all of these things. They had seen these things uh, over a period of years during the ministry of John and then the ministry of Jesus. John's ministry was well known, as was Jesus. But they could not answer the question, as we find. There was a consequence to rejecting John's claims. On one hand, they did not want to accept the fact that John's baptism was from heaven, because that would lead them to some very uncomfortable conclusions about who Jesus is. But they were concerned about popular opinion. If they said that John's baptism was made up by John and came from men, they were going to get in trouble with the people. And when you are given to the fear of man... When you are given to the insatiable craving for adulation, praise, and the affirmation of man, you will be caught in many dilemmas. The fear of man lays a snare, the Bible says, but those who trust in the Lord are safe. You will be caught in all different kinds of snares if you're concerned about what people think and what the implications of what they think are for you. People are constantly caught limping between two opinions because they fear man, as these leaders did. And many people do this with the claims of Christ. They, on one hand, they may have some desire to affirm the teachings of Jesus. There might be things they like about the teachings of Christ, and they might even affiliate with Christianity where it is convenient. But once the cultural gods demand obeisance and sacrifice, suddenly this person abandons those things, abandons any affiliation with Christ, and they run after the approval of man and whatever uh, the cultural gods and the culture makers say that they need to do and say. Now, in this case, it was the crowds that actually had the right perspective. The the crowds were more in the right than the religious leaders. They understood, most of them held that John was a prophet. Whether or not they understood all that John was teaching or understood his purpose, we don't know. We know there was mixed perspectives amongst the crowds. But my main point of application for us is that when we are given to the changing tides of public opinion we will be caught in a snare. And so we see the scribes and priests, they're trying to resolve this tension with an answer. They go off and they discuss amongst themselves. And the verb actually is this verb of like debating different options. They're debating, what if we say this? Then what will happen? And what if we say this? What will happen? And they didn't have an answer. They couldn't answer Jesus' question. They come up short and so let's, let's look at what happens in verses 5 through 7. It says, They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why then did you not believe him? 
But if we say for men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. Now they they came in all high and mighty into the temple. They, They marched in and they came to Jesus and said, by what authority do you do these things? They can't even answer a basic question that Jesus gives them. Who who are these people to come in and say, by what authority do you do these things? They come in all authoritative and sure about themselves. But they can't even answer the most basic, call it theological question, placed before them about John the Baptist and this person that was ministering all around the land. These are the teachers of God's people. These are the priests. Uh, Given the ordinances of God, they're supposed to teach God's people what to believe, and they can't answer this question. In essence, the religious leaders started by questioning Jesus' authority, but Jesus' counter-question shows that they have no foundation to make any judgments. Until they answer that question, they can't make any judgments. How can they claim to be a source of wisdom and knowledge unless they are able to definitively give an opinion on one of the most popular men of their day who was teaching all the people to be baptized and to prepare for the coming Messiah? And so the religious leaders feared the people. They, they could not come to a conclusion on this matter. And one of the early commentators on this passage, this is from uh, the, the English church father Bede, writing in the 700s. I appreciated his comment on this dilemma. And he says this, They fear the possibility of being stoned to death by the crowd, which might happen if they denied that John was a prophet, But they fear a true confession even more. You see their priorities. They were were driven by the fear of men. They were driven by the approval of men. And so they would not confess that John was a prophet because that would lead them to certain conclusions about Jesus, which they did not like. But they also feared even more. uh, They were concerned that that they were going to be stoned to death by the crowd. We see here what the fear of man produces in people. It, it makes man really big and it makes God small. This was the cause of many rejecting Christ during his ministry. Uh, in John 12, for example, this is John 12, 42 through 43, at a similar point in time in Jesus' ministry. It says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. And John gives us a reason for this. He says, For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That that was the rule at this time. You get put out of the synagogue if you confess Jesus as the Christ. And so, so many of them, they liked what Jesus had to say. They were on the edge of believing and following him, but they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God, and they would not confess the truth openly because of that. They had prioritized the approval of infinitesimally small creatures as compared with the praise that comes from the almighty, all-present, all-knowing God. It is so ridiculous if you think about how the fear of man and seeking the approval of others works uh, to have even a large amount of people infinitesimally small as compared with almighty God and what he thinks of the matter. This is why Isaiah 51 speaks of the the folly of the fear of man. And 
Isaiah 51, verse 12, I always have appreciated this passage that speaks to this issue. It says, this is the Lord speaking to his people. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of a man who will be made like grass? And you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he is prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? And the Lord sets forth before us such a helpful picture that you have man who dies like the grass. And then you have the Lord who stretched out the heavens. Who are you going to fear? I can tell you, friend, if this is your priority in life, to please other people, to gain their approval, to not offend, to curry favor at all times, to always make sure you're on the good side of public opinion, you will find the life of discipleship to Christ impossible. You can't follow Christ and then be living in the fear of man and for the approval of men and for the praise of men. Jesus, of course, would sometimes put these contrasts before us. He'd say, you can't serve God and mammon. And so I would add, you cannot serve Jesus Christ and seek to please men. Paul said as much in Galatians. He said, if I were still seeking to please men, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. And so we see that the religious leaders, they're caught on this dilemma. They can't challenge Jesus. They can't answer these questions because they they won't confess Christ that comes with far too many sacrifices of of their selves and humbling for them to receive Christ but they also can't openly even say that John was not a prophet lest they become stoned hurt by the people and so we see our Lord's response after all of this takes place verse 8 And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus didn't waste his time on uh, explaining to them who he was and uh, giving them all these different reasons. They had long heard who he was. They they knew something of his, his ministry and his testimony. He had been there in Jerusalem many times and preached openly among the people. And what our Lord does, I think, is he applies what Proverbs 26 says, is that he's not going to answer the fool according to his folly, lest that fool be wise in his own eyes. The fool here does not have a foundation to ask the question. The fool has not answered other basic questions and cannot therefore challenge Jesus. I think what we find in our Lord's response here is, gives us some wisdom for how we practice defending the faith, defending the truth, responding to the fool and his folly. We, we sometimes talk about the presuppositional method of apologetics. And there are, I think, similarities to the, ways, the way our Lord would sometimes respond to people, perhaps here being one of those examples that is similar to what we talk about with a presuppositional approach where we challenge presuppositions. Sometimes we can be talking to somebody that is against Christ and they're challenging uh, those convictions that we hold dear, those precious truths that we live upon, and they're, they're scoffing at them and they're asking us questions of how I can believe this and how can you believe that. And sometimes even as they ask all these questions, they, they are forgetting the fact that they're standing in the air and they have no foundation upon which to ask any of these questions. 
it's ridiculous for them to even have this line of questioning. For example, some critics of the Christian faith, they mock the Bible and they they say things like, how can you believe in the God of the Old Testament who did such cruel and unethical things to the Canaanite tribes in the Old Testament? Now, rather than taking for granted the parameters of, the, of their question, we could, should ask a few counter-questions. How do you know it was cruel? How do you define cruelty? What is your standard for unethical or ethical behavior? Is that standard universal or did you just make it up? If you just made up that standard, why should God or anyone else be held accountable to your standard of what is ethical or unethical? Is it unethical if I steal your wallet right now? Why not? If my ethical judgment is just as valid as your ethical judgment, then why is it that I can't steal your wallet right now? Are you imposing your ethical judgment upon me and keeping me from stealing your wallet? And on the, you know, the examples could go on in terms of you're seeking to challenge the foundations of the particular question. And then once we've challenged the foundations, of course, I think we can give reasonable, thoughtful, biblical answers to the particular concern that somebody brings up about God's actions in the Old Testament. We can set forth the righteousness of God, the justice of God, and the fact that no one can question God, amongst other things that we could say. But I think we can learn from our Lord by disarming every argument that raises itself against the knowledge of Christ by showing the opponents of Christ that they have no basis for their arguments or their objections against him. We must do so in the fear of the Lord. We must do so with humility, recognizing that we do not possess the degree of wisdom that our Lord did in responding in all these situations. But may it be that we become uh, increasingly wise in terms of responding and giving an answer. I guess we could apply it to the exhortation this morning, studying how to answer uh, those that would bring questions to us. So that's some of the things that we learn from the, the exchange here. But I want to bring some additional applications to us concerning the words of Christ this evening. So we can sit back and we can watch this fascinating exchange and learn much from it. But we need to reckon with the question that they asked. And then we need to answer it for ourselves. Who is this man to do such things? By what authority did he cleanse the temple? By what authority did he preach the gospel in the temple? By what authority does he say any of the things that he says in the gospels? We need to answer that question. Now you remember back in Luke chapter 9, there was the event of the transfiguration where our Lord with the three of his disciples, they went up on the mount and there he was transfigured before them and Elijah and Moses appeared and that was another moment, a unique moment in the Gospels where God the Father spoke from heaven concerning his Son. And do you remember what God the Father said about his Son? Luke 9.35, it says, A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. And then one application. Hear him. Hear him. God the Father wants us to know two things about Jesus. He is the Son of God, and you need to listen to Him. This is a very straightforward application for us, brothers and sisters. If we acknowledge the authority of Christ, then we need to listen to Him. He is the Son of God, and His Word comes with the highest authority. He is absolutely unequaled. Nobody can question the authority of Christ's Word. 
Deuteronomy 18 had prophesied about the prophet who was to come. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And then later in Deuteronomy 18, it says, anyone who does not listen to that prophet shall be cut off from the people. You had to listen to the prophet who was to come, which is also applied in Acts when that passage is quoted. And so what I'm pressing us with this evening, brothers and sisters, is that the words of the Lord Jesus Christ come with the highest authority and how we respond to them is so important. To reject God's prophet, to reject the Son of God who bears testimony on earth, we are rejecting the Father. We are rejecting God. And so we have been together now in the Gospel of Luke for uh, about two years now, a little over two years we were looking at when we started. We've gone through 20 chapters of the words and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I would ask us, how, how are we responding to the words of Jesus? Do you receive the words of Christ as the authoritative word of God? Do you listen with an obedient heart to the words of Christ? Are these the words that they shape your thinking, they shape your words, they shape your behavior? One of the things that Jesus taught us earlier in the Gospel of Luke was the picture of the two houses in the sermon that he proclaimed in Luke chapter 6. You remember the two houses. There's the house built on the sand, and then there's the house built upon the rock. And Jesus says that the one who hears my words and does not do them is like the one building upon the sand, which will not withstand the storm. But the one who hears the words of Christ and does them is like a man who builds his foundation deep. He dug down deep. He, he built upon a solid foundation. He had a, a house built upon a rock and it could handle the storms of life, the temptations, the attacks, the pressures that would come. Now what this means for us, and the reason that Jesus sets it forth that way, is that this is possible. Let me set this before you. It is possible that you will listen to two years of preaching in the Gospel of Luke and be building your house on the sand. I mean, is that sobering to think about? You could listen to two years of preaching of the Gospel of Luke or any other book of the Bible, and you could be building your life upon sand because you're hearing, but you're not doing now, the doing, of course, we know it involves believing and receiving. Some of Jesus' words are words concerning our, our faith and what we believe about him. So we have to receive those. But there's also a doing aspect that Jesus calls us to. He says, you want to build your life upon a solid foundation. Don't just hear me. Many people heard Jesus. Do the words of Christ. Believe them. Receive them. Live by them. Treasure them. If we reject the words of the Gospel of Luke, we're not just rejecting the words of some worldly guru or the most popular current author. We're not rejecting even the words of some ancient sage like Plato, Socrates, or Aristotle, which people would you know, imbue a lot of authority with from a historical standpoint. We're not talking about any of these people, these, these mere men. We're talking about the words of the Son of God who speaks with the authority of God. So brothers and sisters, if we are the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, then our lives are to be built upon these words. 
We are to revere the authority of Christ and revere it not only in our words, but to demonstrate, therefore, in our actions that we revere his words. Accepting, believing, and then practicing the words of Christ is the way that we will build upon a solid foundation. And I can assure you that there are going to be many storms that your house will face. You're going to need the words of Christ to withstand the storms. And so as we've considered this exchange this evening, we need to answer the question. I press all of us to answer the question of, by what authority did Jesus do these things? Well, we know the testimony that he has borne concerning himself. We know the testimony of the apostles. We know the testimony of God the Father himself. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the testimony that you have borne, that you have made very clear to us who our Lord Jesus is. You have made clear to us what our response to him should be. So we ask that you would give us humble hearts to receive the words of Christ, as well as submissive and obedient hearts to do the words of Christ. I pray that there would be no question in our mind concerning who Jesus is, that All of the debates that happen in the world, the debates that happen in the Gospels where people discuss who Jesus is and uh, debate the matter, that we would not debate the matter, but that we would believe. We would receive the testimony that we have seen very clearly throughout our time in the Gospel of Luke. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.